Hi, and welcome to Captivated Audience. My name is Sam Sheen, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and professional colleague, Mary Lindberg. Today's podcast is all about sanctions, and it's my pleasure to introduce a friend of mine who I first met through ACAMS, Eric Sohn. How are you doing, Eric? I am fine. I am quarantined, but we are fine. I go out every day, and I go to Dunkin' or to Starbucks, and I get coffee, and that makes my wife happy, and we all know, happy wife, happy life. So tell folks, Eric, a little bit about your background and what you're currently doing. So my day job, uh, I am global market strategist and product director for Dow Jones, uh, Dow Jones Risk and Compliance. And in that role, I do a number of things. First of all, I publish a lot of thought leadership. So if I've been published about 14 times in, during our current fiscal year, I moderate or present on webinars and the like. We also have a weekly newsletter about sanctions is basically we collate a bunch of news stories and there's anything actually interesting we talk about it and then i'm the commentator we also now have a blog and i write for the blog so i wrote something about jim jong-un and i wrote something about the paycheck protection program from the u.s government additionally in my spare time for the last seven years or so i've been writing a blog called mrwatchlist.com and there i aggregate news uh, about uh, sanctions and other financial crime from around the world. The US, UK, EU, Switzerland, Hong Kong, Singapore. And it's really, it, it's new regulations, it's sanctions designations, it's guidance, and it's enforcement actions, which I think personally are the most fun part of the whole game. Do you do themes or do you focus on the list globally? It's largely globally. It's, so it is whatever publications I can find. One of the nice things about sanctions is a lot of regulators will mail you. So I get mails from you know OFSI, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation. They sent a notice about how under a certain regulation between the EU and the UN, they added a, a person to the Central African Republic's sanctions list this morning. When I run out of stuff coming over the transom, I go looking for it because some of them don't push the notices to you, such as uh, the New York Department of Financial Services, the Central Bank of Russia will uh, list banks that they take enforcement actions again. Same thing with the FIU India. It's only on the website, so you have to go and actively go for that. But generally, that, that's filler after I've gone through the ones that honestly are more active that push the content. Let me run a hypothetical case by you and get your opinion on it. Imagine a small local financial institution based out of, oh, let's choose a country, Denmark. In the customer base, both corporate and private individual offering deposit saving accounts and, and credits, no US dollar transactions, well, not directly, all the deposits are going through a bigger bank, all in Danish krona. They screen their customer base, of course, against the EU sanction lists and PEP lists and whatever. Should they also screen their customers and transactions against the specially designated national list, the SDN list from OFAC? That's actually an interesting question. I would say there are two things. Number one is I think people don't think broadly enough about the businesses that they're conducting. You know, close your eyes and look at the business transaction you're trying to accomplish or the company you're doing business with, and you'd say, what regulators could claim jurisdiction over this? So, for example, you mentioned before the U.S. dollar. Well, it's not that simple, right? Because you could be dealing with a subsidiary in Norway that is actually majority owned by a U.S. investment bank. So we actually had an example of that last year. Acteon, uh, which is a U.K. organized company, 
got in trouble with OFAC because at the time that they were doing certain activities, they were majority owned by KKR, which is a very prominent U.S. investment firm. Okay, so follow-up question then. If your firm or financial institution then deals in a more global market, delivering services of import and export? Similarly, let's say you're doing an export transaction. Well, who are all the parties involved in that? Are there freight forwarders? Are there charges being charged by the banks? What currencies are those in? By the way, if you're saying exchanging kroner for, say, yen, chances are that's not a direct foreign exchange deal. Most cross-trades, and that is basically anything against anything other than the dollar, often go through the dollar. So kroner to dollar, dollar to yen is probably how that went through. And in general, if the U.S. can claim jurisdiction, the U.S. will claim jurisdiction. Ah, the complexity of jurisdictions. Here where I'm based, the regulator, Finansinspektionen, and the Swedish FSA, were quite clear in the case against Nordea a few years back that the EU sanctions are not to be applied with a risk-based approach. The Office for Foreign Asset Control, OFAC, and other jurisdictions applied sanctions. There's not much guidelines on those from the local regulator. U.S. regulations and guidance is so much more fulsome and complicated than anyone else's. Sweden has my favorite set of websites explaining EU sanctions. They're well organized. They're clear. They let you understand what the actual restrictions are under EU sanctions. The EU is Sweden on steroids. There is much more guidance because they're more aggressive. You know, people seem to forget that sanctions aren't anti-money laundering. Sanctions are an extension of foreign policy. And honestly, how few many countries in the world are going to care about that? You know, obviously the U.S. And because it has the financial might to exert the economic pressure that makes sanctions effective. When people say to me, but it's so complicated, my answer is yes. And you ultimately have to get that expertise. Now, mind you, you yourself don't have to have the expertise. You can hire specialist firms. You know, there are firms that have practices that specialize in that information. But, you know, once it's published on a regulator's website, it's binding. Eric, but are they all truly binding? You know, the only thing that isn't binding is what they call advisories. Like, so OPEC has issued some shipping advisories where they talk about the problems and things that could be done to help identify evasions during maritime trade. But since they don't have a a reliable recommendation, it's just something you should look into and that fact you should make some effort. But guidance, on the other hand, is binding. Frequently asked questions are binding. In fact, when they issued a fine against ExxonMobil for signing contracts with the president of Rosneft, Igor Sechin, they specifically mentioned in the enforcement action that two months prior to the contract signing, There was a frequently asked question issued that directly related to the contract signing. And the fact that it was published before they signed the contract meant that ExxonMobil couldn't claim ignorance. No matter where you are, if you can see that the U.S. might have jurisdiction, you have to fill in those blanks. Is there any tip you would like to share with us on how to interpret these guidelines, etc.? In May of last year, OFAC issued this thing called a Framework for OFAC Compliance Commitments. And most of it is about what a sanctions compliance program should look like. But the last four pages, 10 causes of compliance program failures derived from their historical record of enforcement actions. So if you want to have a quick cheat sheet as to maybe things you're not doing properly, those four pages are a really, really good start. Playing the devil's advocate here, is there a way for a local financial firm to say we are not dealing with the U.S.? 
and hence that you are clear and safe out of applying the U.S. sanctions? <laughs> no. Uh, well, and again, it, it all depends, though. So there's a couple of things at play. That certain regulations specifically say that you're liable to the U.S., that there is regulatory liability to the U.S. in certain instances. And the one that everyone knows about is, for example, Ericsson takes chips from Qualcomm or Intel and puts them in cell phones and they ship them to Iran. Because they exported U.S. origin goods, they're in trouble. In fact, that's what tripped up ZTE. Now, of course, it's not financial consequences, but it's actually even worse because usually what happens to foreign firms is they get barred or restricted in their dealings with the United States. For shipping cell phones to Iran, you may not be able to ship cell phones to the United States. You may no longer be able to get components from the United States. Number two is just this thing called secondary sanctions. And secondary sanctions in certain cases say that there are these kind of restrictions if you deal with people that are subject. Currently, very clearly, there are people on the specially designated nationals list or SDN list under the Iranian program where it says subject to secondary sanctions. Clearly, those people, there are consequences for dealing with. Under the terrorism sanctions, at least under Hezbollah sanctions, again, it says subject to secondary sanctions. Now, additionally, the global terrorism sanctions regulations and the Ukraine sanctions regulations are supposed to also have secondary sanctions on all terrorists and also on all Russians subject to asset freezes. However, the Ukraine-related sanctions regulations, and that part has not been transposed into regulation. I have actually have an outstanding question with OFAC saying, the law got passed saying these are supposed to be there, but they're not. Is someone actually liable given the fact that it's not in the Code of Federal Regulations? So that's two. Third one is a practical matter. It's not a regulatory matter. If you follow this as obsessively as I do, you will know that this year the U.S. government has not been shy about sanctioning those who deal with people they don't like. So they sanctioned the Costco shipping, actually two divisions of them, for dealing with North Korea. There's no secondary sanctions on North Korea, but because they were assisting a sanctioned party do their business, they said, well, we can put you on the SDN list. And so they did. So there's always that threat, especially if you're dealing with a sanctions program the U.S. is particularly ornery about, that you yourself could get sanctioned. Okay, Eric, given the global nature of some of the recent financial crime cases we've seen, why are more people designated under sanctions as well as being criminally prosecuted? Sanctions are intended to, you're trying to exert economic pressure so that people change their behavior. To a lesser extent, make it more expensive for them to do stuff. Make them change their behavior. Sanctioning a person in Russia who was involved in the tort of Sergei Magnitsky, I bet you that guy never travels to the West, never does transactions in U.S. dollars. So basically, you've created work for everyone who cares about U.S. sanctions, but do you actually freeze any of this guy's assets? Do you actually make it more expensive for him? Generally not. It's the country-level sanctions that are really effective. Now, the problem with the financial crime ones is you've got to have the details. You know, Just saying the Gambino crime family is sanctioned, okay? Does anyone ever open an account in the name of the Gambino crime family? No. And by the way, they've actually done that with some of the Yakuza groups, but they've done it also with their main people. Of course, if you're a smart financial criminal, the capo of the Gambinos is not the one who does the banking transactions. They're good money launderers, so they've got a whole bunch of Smurfs that go off and do their bidding. Honestly, those people are small fry. They conduct things irregularly. You might see them on an ATM camera grab. Assuming, of course, they don't do it via their cell phone. 
So how would you identify them? Uh, let me actually give you a really good example. So the EU follows the UN's Guinea-Bissau sanction. Guinea-Bissau is like the 175th largest economy in the world, which means it's tiny. Its main claim to fame is that it is the sixth largest cashew producer globally. Do you think England buys a lot of cashews? No. You think Germany does? No. Who buys them? India. Does India impose sanctions on anybody, even though they're a UN member? No. So they're for show, they're to express disapproval. And I just think that from a practical standpoint, boy, that's a waste of all our time and effort just to say bad, 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 bad. And that's part one of our podcast with Eric Sohn. Tune in for part two, where Eric will share some more of his humor and insights on sanctions. Until then, have a great day and stay safe.